0: The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. Please consider becoming a Partially Examined Life citizen, which gets you ad-free access to all of our episodes, hours of bonus content, and our not-school learning community. Or support us on Patreon, where even a dollar's pledge yields great rewards. If you click through the Amazon banners at PartiallyExaminedLife.com every time you shop, you'll be supporting the podcast at no additional cost to you. To learn more, visit PartiallyExaminedLife.com slash support. Now please enjoy the show. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 122 is something like, what's the relationship between psychology and metaphysics? We read St. Augustine's Confessions from around the year 400 AD, books 10 through 13, and we'll bring up some earlier parts again, as this is really a continuation of episode 121, where we read the rest of the book. You can join the discussion, find a link to the text, and lots more information at PartiallyExaminedLife.com. This is Mark Linson-Meyer speaking to you from Madison,
1: Wisconsin.
2: This is Wes Allwin in Boston, Massachusetts.
1: This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. And where is Seth?
2: Seth is, uh, what, where is Seth?
1: <laughs> when is Seth?
2: <laughs> where, oh God, is Seth? He's in my memory. <laughs> the part
0: that, but the, then he doesn't exist anymore. But I think the part that within him that is the truth is the common property of us all. So it is here among us. And eternal. Only he who speaks lies speaks from his own self. If you speak truth, you speak from God.
1: And therefore eternally.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, we're done. We're, d- we're done. Yeah. We're all set. <laughs> I think that's, that's it.
0: <laughs> so Seth would probably enjoy this conversation more than last time. By about a half hour in, he had gotten... Physically ill, <laughs> from the way things were going, and how little he related to the text. Well, he was going to have a comeback this time to discuss that, but he didn't read the stuff in time.
1: Was it because of the book, or was it that he was just feeling ill separately?
0: I think it was. It's Augustine's fault, and our fault, apparently. In so far as we are speaking the boring, we are speaking from <laughs> Augustine. In so far as we are speaking the amusing, we are speaking from ourselves.
2: <laughs> to, to paraphrase.
0: <laughs> uh. Perhaps we do need to bring ourselves back to our roots and read the ground rules for our discussion. Would that be absurd to do at this point?
1: No. I think it's the appropriate time.
0: All right. Number one, try not to assume that our audience has read what we're talking about or has any other background in philosophy or Catholicism or the Middle Ages or has seen uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail or any of that. Number two, don't make arguments that hinge on something other than what we've agreed to read. Don't say, you would know what I was talking about if you'd read Thomas Aquinas' 12 proofs that I didn't take your sandwich. And I have the 12 written out. Do you want to hear those? You wrote out 12. I wrote 12. 12, They're very short. Number one, your sandwiches are gross. I wouldn't eat one of those if you paid me. Number two, (laughs) the very idea... Number three, I only eat sandwiches on Thursdays, and today is Friday. Number four, I didn't even know you had a sandwich. Number five, I'm allergic to bread. Number six, I'm allergic to theft. Number seven, I'm too clumsy to be so stealthy as to steal a sandwich. Number eight, the act of theft is too boring and common for me to pursue. Number nine, I don't even know what sandwiches are. Number ten, I don't even know what stealing is. Number eleven, the sensory world is an illusion. Number twelve, I was only borrowing it, not taking it.
2: Are you making fun of Thomas Aquinas on a St. Augustine podcast?
0: (laughs) Foul! (laughs) Number three, we will be rigorous and exact in all that we say, unless doing otherwise would be potentially more entertaining.
1: Ah, the third rule comes to the rescue.
0: All right, (laughs) this Confessions, why we broke it where we did is because the part that we talked about last time was the biographical part. He talked a lot about sin on the way there. He would stop and reflect philosophically in almost every chapter, at least a little bit, but... Here, now we're up to the present. He gets up to his the point of his conversion in book nine, and then he just jumps forward 10 years to the present. He's confessing to God really what it is that he still doesn't know. He makes kind of a point about, well, what am I really doing here? I know I'm confessing to God, but God doesn't need to hear any of this stuff. God already knows everything. God doesn't need me. So what am I doing? Well, well, I'm doing this for myself to really get myself jazzed about the glory of God. I'm doing this to positively influence my fellow men who would read this. And he was a fairly big man in the church by the time this came out. And he actually ends up in part of it talking about hermeneutics. So just to cast back our eyes a few episodes ago when we were talking about interpretation of texts. I know he does this more directly in some other works, but he spends some time mostly in book 12 and some 13 talking about how
2: to analyze the particular Bible verse in the beginning. God created the heaven and the earth. Yes. And then he goes on. It's in the beginning, there was the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the water.
0: Yes. So actually by the end of 13, he's talked about all that stuff. He talks about God moving on the face of the water for quite a while and applying that to the present day. So that's how he ends this section that we read. How he kicks it off though, we've got a whole big thing on memory, which is one of the most famous parts of the book. And then we've got another thing on time. So memory and time, and I want to talk a little about language acquisition, since that's another thing. One of the only things I knew about Augustine before reading this was uh, that Wittgenstein uses him as the straw man at the beginning of the philosophical investigations, as here's a crappy way to think about language, that you just have thoughts in your head already when you're born, pretty much, and you're looking for words to attach them to. And so then somebody teaches you, points at things and says, Oh, well, that's what that is. It's a eureka moment that you've hooked up those concepts that were already in your heads to words that other people use. And you learn a way to communicate. There's a little more to Augustine's view than that.
2: Yeah. In fact, his view seems a lot more like Wittgenstein's. End, <laughs> yes. Since it involves joint attention to objects and things like that.
0: So they seem to all mesh together pretty well to me. They're talking about, well, what is the mind? How do we know things? As I was joking about at the beginning of this, the way that we end up knowing things is really we don't learn them from looking at stuff. We learn them from our own minds. And it's really God talking through our minds is how we end up learning anything. We don't really learn anything from anybody. Oh, you're thinking of the... That's addressed straight up in this other work, De Magistro, which I sent you guys around a two-page summary of. But it made clear the way that he was using that in this book. There are plenty of places in this book where he says stuff that sound a heck of a lot like that.
2: Well, that was just for a priori principles, it seemed like to me. So for the obvious, the math stuff,
1: it seems to be multi-layered because he clearly talks about learning from the senses. And then he goes on to saying, well, there are certain things that I know and remember in my mind that are not of my senses and goes on from there. But go ahead.
0: The important stuff, the philosophical stuff is not anything that you could simply read. The way we kind of talked about him last time, God gave us the senses to learn with... Basically, God gave us a lot of gifts, but yet, if you don't use them with God's name brand on them, (laughs) if you don't use them while pursuing the God way, then you're using them wrong, and they'll screw up. And that was the way we characterized it last time, and I think that is sort of fair, but to sort of make a little more sense of that, you could impose something maybe from more recent philosophy where it's not just... You know, if you're just paying attention to the senses, then you're going to be led astray all sorts of different ways. And it's only sort of when you are more philosophically reflective about the senses, which for Augustine means paying attention to this inner voice that ultimately comes from God, that comes from the truth. Then you can make sense of all the crap that's going on outside of you. And by extension, you can even use those gifts we are given ethically.
2: Where are you taking this from?
0: I'm all over the place. (laughs)
2: These are the conclusions I've... (laughs) I've I've reached from this comes from outside the reading
3: (laughs) from pouring over the book here
0: from living in its fetid folds for a couple weeks okay the last few (laughs) days anyway what other sort of introductory things before we dive in I think we should spend a lot of time reading particular passages this time as opposed to maybe last time since we have really less material to cover
2: the only introductory thing I want to say was that Everything after book 10 is fucking excruciating. Did <laughs> everyone have that feeling or was I just in a bad mood? Did you feel that about the time stuff? That in book 11? Oh, no. The time stuff was interesting. Let's see. Book 10 is mostly yeah. memory. Book 11 is mostly time. Book 12 I mean, is when it gets into the hermeneutics. Yeah, the time is. Yeah, I see with my notes, I got into that. And then. So maybe I'm just thinking book 12.
0: Right. Book twelve is into hermeneutics, but it's also, since it's about this creation, then it's also gets a little more into the metaphysics.
2: Oh, I'm thinking book twelve and sorry, I meant book twelve and thirteen. Yeah. This is it. Book thirteen is simply, yes, hard to get through. Just the level of hysteria. What was your impression, Dylan?
1: Well, maybe I saved myself because I really blasted through <laughs> twelve and thirteen. But what I was most impressed by is especially in the time section and in the memory section, but even in in between there, thinking about the senses is his forthright phenomenological thinking and asking very obvious questions, trying to answer them and, and moving on to refine the question and unearth what he's thinking about and take seriously what was said either in the Bible or in the context of teachings about God to try to make sense of it. I found it pretty interesting as an example of fairly carefully thinking things through, regardless of where he completely ends up. It's thoughtful in an interesting way.
2: Thank you for balancing my negativity on that.
1: Well, by
0: 13, he's kind of in
1: some ways summing
0: up, and I was hoping to in this episode test the challenge that I made of him last time, that because he's so introspective, he comes across real problems. So the problem, for instance, this time of, it seems like the past doesn't exist and only the present exists. And it seems like the future doesn't exist, but then how, how could we measure time? And he's really spends quite a long time on that problem, but then it's, with any of the problems, what I accused him of last time is that he ends up just kind of pulling a doctrinaire thing more or less out of his ass. Mm-hmm. It's not that that's something that in a Cartesian way became the conclusion he was dialectically driven to by this careful introspective consideration is just, this is really hard to understand is what he comes out of. And in fact says, oh God, please don't let me stop understanding now. I really want to know more. <laughs> so these pauses where he entreats god to let him penetrate a little further into the mystery yeah there's
2: a tremendous amount of god padding in these books yeah and then he'll kind of wave his hand and give some empty doctrine well i didn't seem as being doctrinaire actually i didn't but we can discuss the details of that when we
1: an obvious example that i think is what mark is talking about is the way in which is well of course god is eternal Yes. And therefore, once we get our head around that, then all the other following things fall into place about the way we need to understand X, Y, and Z. And maybe we'll get to a point where we can decide whether or not that seems doctrinaire or... I thought he had an
2: argument, which is that if you are going to explain all of creation, including spatiotemporality, those are things that are brought into being by another being, then that being has to stand out of space and time and being outside of time, it follows that It's eternal.
1: Well, that's why the universe and time began at the same time, right? So that time didn't exist before the universe existed.
2: I mean, it's sort of a, I guess, a bald assertion to say there's no time before the beginning of the universe. I mean, I think we're amenable to it because it sort of squares, I think, with which most of us have learned about the Big Bang theory, right? sure. and the mm-hmm. and, and also pronouncements and papers about physics, about the sense in which time is an illusion or it's a dimension, and there might be universes. Well, I, I don't know, now I'm, now I'm talking <laughs> out of my ass, but you know what I mean. So I think we're prepared to think in that way. But yeah, maybe for Augustine, I can't remember if he has a good reason for asserting that time and the universe begin together, or...
0: Well, he plays around with the idea, which I, maybe is the Manichaean view, that time is just the movements of bodies. right? So you could say a year is just the time it takes the Earth to go around the sun. And that's what a year is. But then he says, no, clearly, if the Earth just sped up, then it would be speeding up. It would go, whereas before it took one unit to get around, now it takes half a unit. But the fact that we could talk about units means that the time is an abstraction by which we measure movement, it is not the movement itself.
1: That whole section, which I think you characterized correctly, is an interesting misunderstanding of Aristotle about motion and about time. In the physics, Aristotle explains that time is the numbering of motion, so that motion is the fundamental thing, motion being just a general characterization of change, and that time is the numbering of that change. And in that case, you could be using whatever units you needed to use. And there might be the open question of whether there is a synchronization of all kinds of motion into one unit of measure, which would be time. Yes, if you picked one particular motion and then had a unit associated with it, you would, of course, need to rationalize time and be able to talk about how many seconds there are in the time it takes for you to walk from sparta to athens it requires you to you know have a way of transforming that measure of time in a rational way but it doesn't mean that the idea of numbering motion is not what time is about
2: well the question is whether time it's not just a matter of whether time is related to motion but whether time is reducible to motion
1: yeah i know i understand that and that's why i found it an interesting seemed to be misunderstanding of Aristotle, because it seemed to be that it was really focused on particular motions, whether time is reducible to a particular motion, as opposed to motion in general, the numbering of motion.
2: I thought he addressed that, though. Okay, well, maybe I missed it. This is book 11, chapters 23 and 24. Okay. So chapter 23 is him rebutting this idea that time is simply the movement of the sun and other heavenly bodies. And then in chapter 24, it's motion of a body.
0: Right. I thought I gave the rebuttal in 23 already that if the sun sped up, then we would know it sped up because time is prior. When we measure something, we are applying something prior, a standard to movement. We're not just looking at the movement. This will going back to the use of a priori concepts, which at the beginning, yeah, I was saying these are from God.
2: Well, we'd be comparing other movements, though.
0: So one of the things he says, you might think that it's a matter of comparing smaller movements to big movements, but think about if I'm comparing a long note to two short notes, well then, since they're not happening at the same time, I mean, they could. It could be that the long note is a G and the short note is a C and I hear the C start and then stop and the G keeps going. That way I can say one is longer than the other. That's one way, but that's not the way we measure. We measure it by a preexistence standard. So if we think that we're comparing things, you know, I look at one thing and I look at another, then it's comparable to my hearing the short note, hearing the long note, and then somehow being able to take my memory of the short note and map it onto the long note and say, well, that's three times as long or something. And he thinks there's something problematic about that.
1: Well, here's a paragraph right at the end of 24. Since the movement of a body is not the same as our measurement of how long the movement takes, which is what you were referring to, Mark, Mm -hmm. who can fail to see which of these is more deserving of the name of time? A body moves at different speeds and sometimes stands still, but time enables us to measure not only its motion, but its rest as well. And we say, it was at rest for the length of time that it was in motion, or it was at Rest twice or thrice as long as it was in motion, or any other proportion, whether precisely measured or roughly estimated. And to me, this epitomizes what I meant by a kind of funny mischaracterization of the notion of change is that just because a particular thing was at rest doesn't mean that the numbering of motion doesn't apply to it. Maybe that's what he means as well, that by saying, therefore, time is not the movement of a body. And maybe, in fact, Augustine would agree more with the idea that time is a numbering of motion, but motion in the abstracted sense, rather than motion of a particular body. It seems like kind of a weak objection, if he just means motion, that, oh, some things don't move, so therefore, how can you possibly be talking about numbering its motion?
0: I mean, the conclusion he reaches toward the end of book 11 is that measured time does not actually exist objectively. That it's a matter of our memory and our expectation. Yep. Talking about a long period of time in the past is talking about a long memory. And talking about a long time in the future is, is a long expectation, which is a weird. Like a long expectation that has something to do with my saying, 4,000 years in the future, this will happen. Like how can that correspond to something in my expectation? Like, I'm going to be dead. I expect to be dead way before then. So it does not correspond to a long expectation on my part, if expectation means anything like it does in my regular experience.
1: He does come in 26 when he asks the question, what do I measure time with? And he meditates on, do we measure a longer one by a shorter one as we measure a beam by in terms of cubits? Thus, we say that the duration of a long syllable is measured in the space of a short syllable and is said to be double. And then he talks about measuring poems and by not all this do we arrive at an exact measure of time. It may well happen that a shorter line will take longer if it is recited slowly than a longer line hurried through. The same is true of a poem and a foot or a syllable. Thus, it seems to me that time is certainly extendedness, but I do not know what it is extendedness of, probably of the mind itself.
0: Yeah. So that's all he can say is that it ends up being of the mind itself because he can't say God is stretched through time because that doesn't make any sense. God is eternal, is not stretched through time. So this comes back way at the end of chapter 13 or something. If God speaks to us, well, how could God do that? Because God is eternal. God exists outside of time. Well, but our minds would have to interpret, would have to hear, would have to see things as temporal. So it just ends up being, this is almost Kantian. This is the, the human mind is what adds time. Right. And it's interesting that even though he, you know, we've got these objections here to, well, time is not equivalent to the motion of some bodies, some particular body, by the end of book 12, well, book 12, chapter 9, nor was the creation of that formlessness, the invisible and formless earth included in the numbering of the days. For where there is no form and no order, nothing comes and nothing passes away, and as a consequence there are no days nor any changes to mark the duration of time. So that makes it sound like creation and time happen at the same time. Yes. It's happened at the same time, but he gets enough into, you know, what is this formless earth before God creates it? Or where did he get the matter from to put it together? He addresses all those things about creation in great detail. And it sounds here like form. In other words, the principium individuaciones, <laughs> to pull in that term that he does not use, the division between things is required for there to be time.
1: Yeah, and so then it becomes either sounding very Aristotelian in the numbering of motion, that is, you have change, and therefore, along with change, you have time, and time doesn't exist without change. Or, as you were saying, it sounds Kantian in that it is the mind's experience of the world itself that numbers the world, and one way in which it does that is time. For somebody who seems so enamored of Plato, he certainly doesn't
0: talk about mathematics very much, does he?
1: Only a little bit in talking about numbers are an interesting example of memory for him. It's a lever for, in some ways, walking to God, that it gets you out of the senses. And then thinking about numbers, the numbers that we count with are different than the numbers we physically experience, like looking at two apples. When we start talking about numbers in general and counting with them, that's a lever into, I guess I would think of it as abstract thought, but it's of memories of things that aren't part of the senses.
0: Right. That's right after he talks about geometry. Yeah. The geometer's line is not the same as the line that we see, and no matter how straight an artist draws
1: it. The form of the circle versus the circle that you draw and stuff like that.
0: You know, what makes it sound modern and Kantian is by saying it's the mind, whereas Plato is going to say it's something objective. But as we were saying, for Augustine, those are the same things. The part of the mind that is the eternal part, the part of the mind that is the truth, the part of the mind that is real knowledge is god speaking through us
1: let's work up to that right he gets to that by thinking about memory and he gets to thinking about memory by asking the question what is god in a funny way he does a full circle he asks how do we come to know god that's Mm -hmm. book 10 chapter 7 by what faculty does he come to know god and then that leads him into analysis of
2: memory yeah so it can't be the senses obviously
0: God is not found by whatever power it is that animates the body. He goes through this kind of Aristotelian de anima thing. Well, it can't be things that we have in common with animals. It's not that part of our soul that makes us move around, that even plants have that makes them grow. And it's not the sensory part of us. So it must be reason. It must be something the next level up.
2: So memory is going to actually be an important faculty for being in touch with God. It's part of why he's examining it here. In the same way, it's a way of being in touch with the a priori or in... Plato's parlance, recollection is the way you get in touch with the A-Day, which for Kant or what Kant calls schema, the triangle that's standing for more than itself.
0: Chapter seven here, he's got this storehouse model of memory, where memories are stored under general categories of the understanding. And in fact, he thinks we file things according to the senses by which they enter and thinks he can prove that by the fact that, you know, it doesn't matter how loud things are. If I want to close my eyes and imagine a particular color or painting, that's not going to interfere. If I'm in a loud room and I try to imagine a sound, he thinks that I'm going to be distracted by the current sounds that are going on, but that the distraction would not cross senses that way. I'm not sure if that's true.
2: You're looking at the third paragraph of chapter eight here. One thing we should note is that in the previous paragraph, just so we don't skip over that, we get a sort of representational model of perception and memory. So that, for instance, at the end of the second chapter, when we perceive something, it's not that the things themselves come into us and sort of stay in that storehouse. We have images of the things. right? But that's the a priori stuff. There's no distinction between the thing itself and the image. So if it's principles of mathematics, it's not like there's any distinction there. But we get to that later. But for this no cross-interference part, Mark, I thought he was talking about common sense here, The sense in which we're coordinating all the different senses into an experience of one object. Can we get a quote? So this is the third paragraph of chapter 8 of book 10. And even though we know by which senses they were brought in and laid up in the memory, who can tell how these images were formed? Even when I'm in darkness and in silence, if I can, I will produce colors in my memory and distinguish black from white and in any other colors if I choose and sounds do not break in and disturb the image I'm considering that came in through the eye since the sounds themselves were already there and lie stored up apart. For I can summon them too, if I like, and they are immediately present. And though my tongue is at rest and blah, blah, blah. He's talking about the fact that we can recall, obviously we can bring these experiences to mind, even when we close off the senses, we can use memory to sort of have a quasi experience of things. Mark, you were getting at this lack of cross interference between them.
0: Right. Well, it's supposed to come from a very literalistic picture of, like you said, the images of of things are coming in our heads. And we can then pull them up later as if a storehouse. I feel like Wittgenstein here saying, Augustine is giving a classical view that was later proven wrong by scientists and <laughs>
2: folks like that. Wait, what part is proven wrong? That we don't uh, have Just the images? the idea that we have,
0: that what memory primarily is, is a storehouse of actual images. And he seems to think that... Those aren't lost, that if you forget, well, where did it go? It's still down in there. It's just you somehow can't call it to consciousness. He doesn't have the terms consciousness and unconscious there, but he's groping toward that. And that goes with the idea that if it comes in as an audible thing, then you store it as an audible thing. If it comes in as a visual thing, you store it as a visible thing. Whereas I think it's been shown by psychological experiments that we kind of jumble all those things together. And the thing that gets stored is some kind of composite that we put together that then we might forget particular details or even forget what modality we learned it by.
2: Yeah, I don't know the neuroscientific answer to that. Now,
0: I'm not going to try to actually say what the right answer is. It's different than this warehouse theory.
2: Yeah, I'm not familiar enough with that to but I you know, I thought Wittgenstein's point was it's not when you have a concept of something. It's about what significance means. Significance isn't imagistic. The concept isn't imagistic. But Plato's already onto that with his Eidos because it's a non-visible visible, right? So is Augustine and Kant with his schema and Augustine with his version of that. That's the whole point of saying that, well, when I draw this triangle, that schema, it's not actually this particular triangle that is the point. It just stands in as a sort of intermediary. So for instance, even if in saying the word dog, you might imagine a dog, a particular dog, but what it's doing schematically there, even if you've given it black fur, the color of its fur, of course, is irrelevant to its being a dog. And you can make lots of variations in those different appearances in the same way you can adjust the sides of the triangle in your head, but... It doesn't matter. It still represents all triangles. What we got from the Wittgenstein episode is this emphasis on the fact that we're not thinking in images. The way I think about this is a concept is about potentiality. It's about all those different places you could go, either by imagining a particular or in being able to recognize a particular when you come into contact with them. So it's about potentiality in that sense. When we run through a bunch of sentences as we're talking, it's not like we're just getting this succession of little images. Most of those words are significant without ever registering in our minds consciously with a schema or an image or anything like that. I didn't know if, Mark, if that's what you were trying to relate that to in Wittgenstein or not.
0: I was making just a more abstract point about Wittgenstein accusing Augustine of being naive. I was doing basically the same thing with regard to memory, but there are certainly interesting points of comparison between the warehouse. Imagistic theory of memory and a theory of concepts, but he doesn't actually make that connection here that I saw too much Apparently, there's another book De Doctrina Christiana on Christian doctrine where he actually has a theory of signs, but we didn't read it So I'm not gonna guess
1: Okay I was gonna ask if everything you were saying you were saying Augustine said or if you were
2: So I was saying that there's actually more compatibility between all these thinkers So with the whole idea of what a concept is, I actually, I'm not so sure that Wittgenstein and Kant and Augustine are as inconsistent. I may just misunderstand that. I guess Mark was actually at a different criticism. Just this whole idea of the memory storehouse.
1: It seems to me that Plato and Augustine and maybe most of them are keying off phenomena like I can recognize a dog as a dog and never having seen that particular dog. And I recognize a tree as a tree. I've never seen that particular tree. And they all see some activity of memory going on in there. And then there might be slightly varying accounts of exactly how that's working, whether it's imagistic or not, but they seem to all run afoul of it being merely imagistic and kind of a very simple-minded filing system in our memory that amounts to matching because They all recognize that you can't have all the matches in your mind. None of them go so far as to say, a priori, even in the notion of recollection, the myth of recollection in Socrates, that I have an exact image of everything in my mind that ever possibly existed. And my process of engaging with the world is matching up those files of images with the world that I experience. Even if it's imagistic, they don't go that far. There has to be a way in which you cross over and are able to account for all the variety of experienced images with a much smaller set of them.
2: Right. One thing we should be clear about here is right now we're talking about memories of particular experiences, and then we're also segueing into our use of concepts, which obviously involves memory. So we don't want to mix those two things up, and they're related, of course. One way to distinguish Plato and Wittgenstein is here we're talking about concepts, and so for Plato, the Grasping of a particular involves a recollection directed towards what we would think of as a concept, what would he would call an idea in its own sort of metaphysical realm, and so he calls that anamnesis or recollection, and there's a sort of rational, intuitive contact with that, and that's what grounds our use of the concept. For Wittgenstein. I think he would deny that, and he would certainly deny the metaphysics of that, although at some cognitive psychology level, there's got to be something similar when we talk, again, of the CD's use of schema and things like that. So there could still be something going on neuroscientifically, in the, or the way we would describe it through cognitive psychology, that it would actually look quite a bit like Plato, but without the metaphysics. But they're still, obviously, of course, distinct.
1: Would you agree, Augustine, is a little closer to Plato in, in this
2: yeah. recollection business? Because I think God is going to serve that grounding role that the ideas you do for Plato.
1: And they both have the same sort of answer to the problem of learning. That is, neither of them want to say that you actually create something necessarily. In answering the question, well, how do I recognize something if I had never seen it before? How do I learn something that I never actually encountered before? And their answer to that has to do with, well, I must have within me all of those things that allow me to recognize them in particular. And therefore, I recollect them. And my, then in, in for, for Plato, then, like in the Mino, the process of learning is one of re-remembering, of recollecting of the things that I had forgotten.
0: So it's interesting to connect Augustine's account of everyday memory, we might say, with this notion of this platonic collective unconscious sort of memory. Given that ultimately learning things, as you were saying, is... Being hooked up to this collective unconscious to God, there actually is nothing that would prevent him from having a theory by which all knowledge is somehow internal, that we don't learn anything from the outside world at all. That if you don't have a weird metaphysics like that, then you end up saying, how could the brain possibly hold (laughs) infinitely many potential images? But. At least this is at his disposal that Augustine could say that.
2: Yeah, we should make sure we're clear about that distinction. So the anamnesis theory is about learning math and first principles and general concepts of things. It's about having those things within you. Although in the Parmenides, the young Socrates is challenged, well, is there an ados of mud getting at that? Well, something so formless, how could there be a priori an ados for that? It's and, as if you're remembering Socrates, a future episode. Sorry, right, Socrates says, "Yes, there, <laughs> there is." So, you know that still is a problem. That's a whole different thing than saying that we have all our particular experiences somehow in us to begin with—that our actual sensory experiences, recollection—that would be a different proposition.
1: Not to stay too much longer on Plato, interpreting the myth of recollection in Amino, it seems to me that you could easily understand it as a myth, and the point of that myth is to try to rationalize how out of ourselves we're able to understand new things, taking it face value that those things must be in us, at least the power of that must be in us. Maybe there's other parts of the myth and other parts of Plato that make it much more concrete than that.
0: Well, this is making me want to at least pull in the since there's not actually that much text to pull in, the earlier stuff on learning language, because that's very much essential Okay, so of course Augustine doesn't think that nothing comes through the senses. He's not a complete rationalist, but his account that I had characterized, let's try to read this is Book One Chapter eight, where he's talking about himself as an infant, and of course he doesn't remember this. He says, I did not learn by elders teaching me words in any systematic way, as I was soon after taught to read and write, but of my own motion, using the mind which you, my God, gave me. I strove, with cries and various sounds, and much moving of my limbs, to utter the feelings of my heart, all this in order to get my own way. Now, I did not always manage to express the right meanings to the right people, so I began to reflect. I observed that my elders would make some particular sound, and as they made it, they would point at or move towards some particular thing. And from this, I came to realize that the thing was called by the sound they made, when they wished to draw my attention to it. That they intended this was clear from the motions of their body. By a kind of natural language, common to all races, which consists in facial expressions, glances of the eye, gestures, and the tones by which the voice expresses the mind's state. For example, when things are to be sought, kept, thrown away, or avoided. So as soon as I heard the same words again and again properly used in different phrases, I came gradually to grasp what things they signified. And forcing my mouth to the same sounds, I began to use them to express my own wishes. Thus I learned to convey what I meant to
2: those about me, and so took another long step along the stormy way of human life and society. So that is a completely Wittgensteinian picture of language acquisition. It's quite accurate, I think. I've talked about this guy before, Michael Tomasello, a book called The Origins of Human Communication and several other books. And by the way, he considers himself a sort of a Wittgensteinian linguist, and he's done a lot on language acquisition in primates and human beings. And this idea of pointing at things is essential. This joint attention that you give to objects that precedes language is really the foundation of language. And there's something linguistic, because a lot of primates or other animals, they can't really understand pointing in the sense that they can't look at a gesture and then read your mind and read your intentions, saying, that's interesting to me, and it also should be interesting to you, which is the whole sort of communication in pointing. So I was pretty startled by this passage when he talked about... This idea pointing at some particular thing and gestures and glances of the eye. That's why earlier I said I didn't really understand why Wittgenstein used him as a foil. Well, just from the element that I
0: had thoughts in the first place. And I was just looking for ways to express them. And I didn't couldn't figure it out any way, so I just flailed
2: around and screamed. Well he doesn't say thoughts, he says the feelings of his heart. The feelings of my heart. There's an argument to be made that you can't turn feelings into thoughts without concepts and without language, although I'm not so sure. Does that help
0: or does that hinder or is it irrelevant to the question of the extent to which Augustine is an a priorist about knowledge in general? It seems there's a lot that's come in a priori, but the only thing it seems that he learned from the outside was the actual words and that the words go with those things. Now, the distinguishing this from that, to know that you were pointing at this thing and not something else, the understanding what pointing is in the first place, the understanding that words can stand for things, these seem to be all things that he came up with on his own through divine guidance.
2: Wittgenstein's objection is that you learn languages people putting little labels on things for you. And that's the point of the whole Wittgenstein construction scene, because it's about other people's intentions. It's about your intentions and getting them to do things. It's about that whole game, right? Which most of this passage seemed entirely consistent with that. Is there a place where it sounds like people are just helping him label things?
1: So it's a subtle kind of
2: distinction, right?
1: Well, I guess it just depends on how you interpret the stuff we were reading earlier from the analysis of memory and the file system labeling memories based upon their primary sense experience. And so forth. I think that he gets past that, maybe to something that's more consistent with what Mark just read on how we learn. In that section, he's clearly learning through a variety of sense impressions, and his learning requires that there be a kind of lining up of multiple ones of them. The pointing with the sight, with the sound, with all of that's going into him learning language. So the language itself is a kind of node of different sense experiences coming together to give you language that you work with.
2: Yeah, I don't think there's anyone who would deny that we need sense experience to learn language. Obviously, there's a linguistic debate, I think it's still ongoing, about the extent to which the fundamental structure of language or the rules of language are innate and a priori, that they just come as part of the evolutionary structure of the brain. And so, of course, Noam Chomsky is on the sort of Platonist side of that debate. It's a question of degree. Obviously, the cognitive apparatus is there in human beings in a way that it isn't in other animals. you know. And then there's that very fine question of to what extent is this stuff innate and to what extent do we acquire it by experience? Very clearly, we have to have some experiences to acquire it. And also very clearly, there's something innate, even if it's just the most bare bones of capacities.
1: Yeah. I mean, that gets back to your comments about potential, right? If what you mean by innate is that You have all of these memories, whole cloth, and all of these experiences, whole cloth, that just are kind of pulled out of you as a result of experience. That sounds like an absurd conclusion. On the other hand, if you say, oh, you're going to learn it all, then it seems you have to have the potential to learn it. So there has to be something there that is acted upon and acting upon the world in order to generate the activity of the mind. As you said, there's something innate that has to be going on even if it's not the particular memories and images and so forth.
0: And that's what I was wondering about you know, when he's talking about the warehouse, that we who think that uh, tabula rasa makes sense. When I was in school and I learned about Locke's tabula rasa, we're born blank and then experience writes on it. That seemed completely intuitive to me. And so it's sort of been a struggle since then to get a hold of that. Oh, no, no, there's what about Chomsky's? Yeah, the the structures of language are already, you know, there's a lot of stuff that instinct gives us. And we have to talk about the difference between knowing that and knowing how and all this kind of stuff. I don't think that Augustine had that concept at his disposal. So when he says a warehouse, we might picture, well, when you're born, the warehouse is empty. And then as the senses bring stuff in, and then it files all the stuff from sight here and all the stuff from hearing there. The way he makes use of the warehouse is we catch it in media rays with it already stuffed full of stuff. The phenomenology of it is that we could have seen something and then we forget it, but then we recall it again by its connection to something else. Well, where could it have been? It must have been lurking back in the warehouse somewhere. So it's like the warehouse is a big, indefinitely large thing already filled with crap that's really dark everywhere except three feet in front of us, which is very different than tabula rasa. We fill it up and we empty it out or something.
2: I'm a little confused now, because even a rationalist or even someone with a platonic theory of recollection, those are for concepts or for A-Day. And particular experiences still have to come in through the senses. It's just that the experience is theory-laden, let's say, or it's concept-laden. It doesn't become experience until, say, for Kant, what our mind does to the raw data, to the raw given Although for Kant, that's kind of a mystery what that is, because for it to be an experience, you already have to have done so much to it. But there still has to be a given. There still has to be data coming in from the outside, no matter how hyper-rationalist and how platonic or Kantian you are. There's still a flux. So the storehouse theory is about... The theory he's starting with here is a theory about storing up memories, that particular memories that we acquire. Just a few sections down, we're going to start getting into the a priori stuff. But the a priori stuff is really quite different, because that's where the thing itself and the image are the same thing. Here, they're just images of the outside world and this storehouse. You see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, well, and he gets to that transition where he comes to conclusion that the mind is not large enough to contain itself. So he says in just the last paragraph, Great is this power of memory, exceedingly great, O my God, a spreading limitless room within me, who can reach its uttermost depth. Yet it is a faculty of my soul and belongs to my nature. In fact, I cannot totally grasp all that I am. Thus the mind is not large enough to contain itself. But where can that part of it be, which it does not contain? Is it outside itself and not within? How can it not contain itself? How can it be that... Any of itself that it is not is in itself. So I think it's by this kind of question that he gets to the stuff that Wes, you're pointing to. That question of concepts and that there has to be that kind of connectedness that the mind has access to something that is more than itself.
2: Before, actually in the paragraph before that, he's also talking about the role of Memory in self-consciousness, in imagination, and in will. So he's really talking about something much bigger. And he's sort of telling us that its memory is sort of this foundation for mental faculties in general. And the things we can do with the mind. But, but yeah, I think you're right, Dylan. This transition at the end about the vastness within and the sense in which it's unexplained. The sense in which we could be a mystery to ourselves or that the mind is not large enough to contain itself, gets us to this point where there's going to be to our relationship to the a priori and ultimately to God. So that would be in 9 nine and 10.
1: Well, that's where he uses this cabinet image. So this is where
2: I started to first see this a priori stuff, the very beginning of 9, where he says, these are not the only thoughts to which the immense capaciousness." Of memory gives rise in memory also are all such things as we have learned of the liberal sciences and have not forgotten, lying there as if in a more inward place, which yet is no place. And of these things, I have not the images but the things themselves. So principles, I think, and he talks about grammar and you know I guess we can think also of scientific principles, anything to do with our general knowledge instead of not just particular experiences.
1: Yeah, and continuing in 10, now when I hear that there are three kinds of questions, whether a thing is, what it is, and of what sort it is, I do indeed retain the images of the sounds of which those words are composed, and I know that they pass through the air with a certain noise and now no longer are. But the things themselves which the sounds signified, I could not come at by any bodily sense, nor see them at all save by my mind. And what I stored in my memory was not their images, but the truths themselves.
2: So this is something we could think about phenomenologically, where our experience of objects is actually perspectival, and it's a series of experiences with different senses. And that the thing itself, the object as a whole, is not something that comes in through any one sense. It has to be constructed of all those individual experiences.
1: On the one hand, he recognizes them as being part of his memory. But he pleads confusion about how they got into his memory, at least in this part. I think Mark's right. In the end, it's going to be by God. And we can relate this. So, for instance,
2: he says right after that For I run my mind over all the doorways of my body, but I cannot find any door by which they could have come in. Yeah. So, it reminded me here of Hume and skepticism about causality and the sense in which there's no sensory doorway for that, for causality in particular. That's also related. Or perhaps he was just too priggish to consider all the possible doorways. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ. Yes. The <laughs> anal theory of perception.
0: The Is that what you're going to
1: say? Perce-
2: yes. Yes. I was trying to figure out, yeah, how to get there. But
1: <laughs> <laughs> just leave it to Mark. Russ, he's an expert. It, it, was, it was already there
2: in my memory.
0: And, uh, <laughs> uh, the common bad taste of
2: men, uh, collective unconscious. So at the end of this, he gets to the recollection. Thus, they must have been in my mind even before I learned them, though they were not in my memory.
1: And he, in the next couple sections, moves on into that just doubling down that memory is not senses in chapter 12. This is where he further makes the transition to the abstract and the a priori. The memory also contains the innumerable principles and laws of numbers and dimensions, and none of these have been impressed upon it by any bodily sense seeing that they have neither color nor sound nor scent nor taste nor feel. To know them is to recognize them interiorly without any concept of any kind of body whatsoever. With all my bodily senses I perceive the numbers that we use in counting, but the basic numbers by which we count are not the same as these, nor images of these, but really are. That whoever does not see these truths laugh at me for talking thus, while he laughs at me, I shall be sorry for him.
2: <laughs> I love that line. I put a little star next to that. That was awesome. He's so he's feeling a little insecure about his theory here.
1: Well, yeah, but importantly, numbers are examples of things that really are. Again, he's sounding very Platonistic here, right? Yeah. That the mathematics is the truth in the same way that forms are. I was wondering if you guys saw stuff about falseness and mistake. In chapter 13, I thought he was going to start talking about how we're wrong about things and where we have false notions. And he seems to acknowledge there and in a couple other sections that we can hold things to be true in our mind and have them actually be false. But he doesn't seem to me to get very far in articulating how to distinguish them. And that is how to know when we're wrong. Right, because it
0: seems like anybody who would be reminding us of one of these general truths, in other words, you hear a bit of philosophy or anything in the liberal arts from somebody, and then for it to get in your mind, it's not just that somebody tells you some information and you put that together in some way from even if the meanings themselves are preexistent in your head, you can construct the doctrine. It sounds like the way he had presented it, the way we've been reading it, that all such things just jump full-blown from the recesses of the collective unconscious of the Platonic formland where they were hidden. But then it seems like you couldn't hold any general propositions
2: that were not in fact true. But since that's wrong, you have to somehow revise the theory. Is he trying to explain that here? I thought these sections he's getting into now are sort of paradoxes of memory where it's true that I remember thinking that the Eiffel Tower was in London even though it's false that the Eiffel Tower is in London. The sort of indirect problems of error that we saw in the Theatetus, and also with Russell and the sort of indirect reference, Russell and Frege and all the rest of it, it's really central, the sense in which you can logically allow error. And so in section 14, he does it with feeling, you know, I could joyously remember sorrow or I could recall having emotions without being actually disturbed by the emotions. Yep. And later on, remembering forgetfulness
0: Let's talk about that emotion thing a little bit. Earlier he had said, when we were talking about the imagistic stuff, it's not necessarily clear that he thinks that to think is to have images, but he definitely thinks that when you think there are images that accompany that, and I'm trying to find a quote here. Book 10, section 8, verse 14 here. In my memory, too, I meet myself, I recall myself, what I have done, when and where, and what state of mind I was when I did it. In my memory, all the things I remember to have experienced myself or have to have been told by others. From the same store, I can weave into the past endless new likenesses of things, either experienced by me or believed on the strength of things experienced. From these, again, I can picture actions and events and hopes in the future. And upon them, I can meditate as if they were present. I shall do this or that. I say to myself in the vast recess of my mind, with its immeasurable story of images of things so great, and this or that follows. Oh, if only it could be this or that, or again, may God prevent this or that. Such things I say within myself, and when I speak of them, the images of all the things I mention are to hand from the same storehouse of memory. And if the images were not there, I could not so much as speak of the things. That's what I was trying to get at.
2: So he's talking about the imagination here, and, he's, and it's, a, it's a very human sounding thing where I can come up with new things by recombining different experiences. And then that's required for the will. Obviously, being able to imagine a future is part of a requirement for the will. So.
0: But it was the image-making part that I was focusing on. So, yes, when I think anything, in order to understand what I'm thinking at all, some sort of visual image comes to mind. Does that sound correct? I don't know that that's true. Certainly, if I'm thinking about the future or the past, then some visual images comes to mind.
2: But he's talking about thinking of particular things, you know, especially with regards to the will, what I'm going to be this or that, or what I'm going to do, what the future holds. Those are particular. Right. So particulars are stored and called back up in
0: as particular. So when I think of my mother... A particular image from my memory somewhere of my mother comes up. It's not just that there's an amalgam that all these things get sort of smashed together and maybe even connected with other things that were associated with my mother. So the mother and the black bear are thought of in the same, all these Freudian weirdness of, of the yeah. subconscious mashing things together. None of that's happening. It's just that there's a storehouse of immaculate images that I draw one back and that's how is essential for language to work.
2: Well, they're not necessarily immaculate. He talks about the different gradations of clarity and distinctness and very early on. But this is why I wanted to keep these two ideas of recollection very distinct. It's recollections of the images that have been stored up as opposed to a more platonic theory of recollection associated with the a priori. Those are two very distinct things. Right. The initial way he makes the distinction is not
0: by saying experience versus a priori. He doesn't talk that way really at all, but he talks about – sensory things and things from the liberal arts,
2: right? The key distinction is these are images and with the, the liberal arts, it's the things themselves. Yes. And so when we get to feelings,
0: that's the part that it seems difficult that with the liberal arts, it's the things themselves that come in our heads. When, Cause we're talking about ideas. Whereas with the sense impressions, of course it's not the things themselves, it's the images of them. But what about a pain? you know, I had a pain before, well, I guess I have a memory, an image of the bodily pain, so he considers bodily pains first. And we can sort of think about how the image of the bodily pain is like the image of red in general or something. I don't have to have a mood, a reddish mood come on me just by thinking about the term red.
1: I think Augustine requires that we think of image more generally than visual, but as instances of any kind of sense perception individually.
2: Yeah. Say impressions. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sense impressions. So that, you know, when I think of a song, I'm not necessarily thinking in visual imagery. I may be thinking in terms of sense impressions.
0: Although he points out that you can say, see how that song goes, that really all the different senses get sort of swept up in the way we talk about it in terms of uh, sight. That's He's just saying that vision is a metaphor for thinking. Thinking. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What's the problem with feelings is that it seems like the feeling, if it's a mental feeling...
2: Well, it's the paradox of being able to have a memory of a feeling without actually having the feeling. Yes. So the premise in that is, yes, this happens all the time, is I remember being upset, but I'm not now upset. I remember being happy, and I'm depressed. In fact, I'm depressed because I remember being happy. (laughs) It's even worse.
0: (laughs) Or I remember fear without being afraid, where... I thought he stated that a little too strongly. Like,
2: that's one of those kind of Freudian... It's certainly not always the case, right? That she could remember feeling sad and become sad. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes. That thinking about the past sorrow makes you... Yeah. But not always. And, you know, as we just pointed Mm. out, you might actually feel depressed thinking about past joys because of your, your distance from
1: them. Just depends on how zen you are.
2: Isn't it that I remember that I was sad
0: but I don't remember the sadness without actually feeling Um, the sadness.
2: That's a good question. (laughs) Have I really remembered my sadness until I've felt the sadness that I'm remembering? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) How do I know? I'm remembering it through an opaque glass, but yeah, I think it is
0: similar to a smell that he thinks that for any of the sensory things, you could remember an image of the smell, but can you really remember an image of a smell or is it just that I remember that that was a bad smell, but then until you smell it again, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe how bad. <laughs> I didn't remember it being that bad or something.
1: My wife used to get really annoyed at me when I would order food at a restaurant because I would look at the menu and I would start imagining eating the food and tasting what it must taste like. And so I'd be like moving my mouth around and just try <laughs> and. <laughs> What I was clearly doing is trying to bring forth the taste sense of that food and what it must be like in order to make that decision. And it's not the same as, oh, I remember what a hamburger tastes like, but the recollection of the hamburger involved invoking the sensation of the taste of the hamburger. It seems to me there's something right about the idea that when we recollect things that are associated with sensory perceptions... It's one thing to remember the instance of it and be able to point to it like the way you would point to a painting or a category of something. But to actually have remembrance of the sense itself would involve invoking the shadow of that sense as experienced, activating it in some way. So
0: he denies that. He does. It makes perfect sense that we can remember this. So what does he make out of that? This is supposed to cause a problem.
2: No, I think done was saying something consistent with Augustine, wasn't he? The same sort of thing where
1: you can remember it. I think there's two ways to remember it, right? Is that you can, and Augustine points to this as being the confusion, Uh you can remember being sad while you were happy and not have it make you sad. And we were pointing out, and I don't think Augustine emphasizes this, but of course that you could also remember being sad and you might actually experience the feeling of sadness in doing that. And we were asking the question... Isn't there something more authentic about that being the memory of the sadness rather than it being a pointing to the memory of the sadness and that there might be a distinction that is worth making between those two things. Augustine emphasizes the
2: first. Right. Both are consistent with him. I think he knows that, you know, that having an emotion could trigger that emotion. It's just that in many cases it doesn't. And in many cases it's sort of somewhere in between, right? The sadness that I feel about my past sadness is not exactly the same sadness, if that's what I'm going through. It's not the sadness that I felt then. In the same way, you know, I can't perfectly photographically remember the movie theater I was just in or something like that. It still counts as memory. It's more conceptual, right? You know, If I remember being sad, but I don't have the feeling re-evoked, I still understand what sadness is, and I could abstractly remember my sadness without
1: feeling it. I mean, the classic example is people saying, well, the only reason why there are any human beings in the world is that women don't remember the process of giving birth. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, that might not be completely true. It might be that even when people have a very clear memory of the ordeal they went through, they're still willing to do it again, be it childbirth or be it other things. that They go back for it because there's something else in it. It's not for lack of remembering the actual ordeal and the pain of it that prevents them from going back to it.
0: So the image he uses to talk about remembering things without refeeling them, is yes, the memory yes. is the belly of the mind, is the mind's stomach. And joy is like food that sits in the belly but cannot be tasted.
1: He just has such an evocative way of writing. Perhaps one might say that the memory is like the mind's stomach, and joy and sorrow like nice or nasty food. When joy and sorrow are committed to the memory, it is as though they had passed into the stomach where they can lie but not be tasted. It is, of course, ridiculous to see it like this, but yet some sort of resemblance there is.
0: Well, and then next he talks about, perhaps, therefore, just as food is brought up from the stomach by <laughs> chewing the cud, so things are brought up from the memory by remembering. But if this is so, why is it not the pleasure of the joy or the pain of the sorrow felt in the mouth of his thinking by the man who thus remembers them. Nobody would want to talk about sorrow or fear right? If, if we felt them every time we...
1: But as Wes pointed out, I think that he sees that the two things we're talking about, that it's possible, of course, to feel the fear when you were talking about it. But what's interesting to him is that you can talk about the fear without feeling it.
0: Right. The whole point of this is he presents it as a paradox, yet we could not speak of them like fear and pain unless we found in our memory not only the sound of their names according to the images impressed upon it by the sense of the body, but also the notions of the things themselves, which notions we did not receive by any gate of the body. It was the mind aware of them through the experience of its own passions, which committed them to the memory, or as often happens, the memory of itself retained them, although the mind did not commit them to it.
1: Yeah, again, this is another angle into the activity of the mind not merely being an activity or conglomeration of senses.
2: The particulars come in through the senses, but the concepts yes. associated with them are a priori or that are there in the mind to begin with.
1: Yeah. And while he in the next section acknowledges there being some uncertainty about whether this is all made up of images or not of images, he's pointing out that there's a kind of paradox or confusion here.
2: Well he gets on into the next section in section fifteen. The sense in which memory is required for signification, right? Yep. We talk about objects and their absence when we use symbols and language. and So unless there was some image of it in my memory, I could not possibly recall what the sound of the name signified. And
0: then he's moving toward math, the remembering of forgetfulness. So the remembering of the negative. Yeah. I can also name forgetfulness and know what I mean by the word, but how should I recognize the thing itself unless I remembered it? I'm not speaking of the sound of the word, but of the thing the sound signifies.
1: That's straight out of Mino, right? Mino's paradox
2: in reverse, yep. actually. In reverse. Well, yeah, because in Mino, you're, the question is how you could investigate something without already knowing it to some extent, right? Because you could, you wouldn't yeah. know it if you found it unless you already knew somehow knew it. Here, it's how can I say I've forgotten something <laughs> if <laughs> if I didn't already know it? Yeah. Or if I didn't in some sense know it, yeah. Does anyone have an example or something to make that less confusing?
0: This is what was confusing about this, is if saying you remember forgetfulness, I'm not sure he's saying, I remember that I forgot the name of that guy. It's not a particular thing, because it's not that puzzling to say, well, I remember that guy, I remember his face, I remember that people have names, right? but I just don't remember the name of that guy. Like, there's just nothing problematic on his theory of why that... Particular name should have slipped my mind. It's the concept of forgetfulness as a whole. He thinks that that involves remembering the negative in an important way. And I'm trying to understand why that would be so puzzling because it seems in the kind of the same way. Well, I remember certain instances of when there was something that I didn't remember when I was lacking some piece of information. I remember a time where I didn't remember somebody's name. It doesn't seem that hard to just say forgetfulness is an abstract notion. It is not something that stands for a thing itself. This is my problem. And why I feel like, Wes, you're a little too quick to attribute to Augustine more sophisticated concepts than he has at his disposal, like the notion of a concept and how the notion of a concept is distinct from individual things. And, you know, by the time we get to Wittgenstein, we say, of course, individual things maybe have images associated with them, but concepts don't have images associated with them. Or if they do, they're kind of irrelevant to what the concept actually is that I feel like Augustine has
2: a very literal imagistic notion of
0: concept as well. And so that's why this is having a problem. He
2: except that he's, he doesn't use the word concept, but he does make this distinction between having the things themselves, the a priori things themselves in the memory and having particular images of particular. So, That's straight out of Augustine. That's not my...
1: And for Augustine, it it becomes him distinguishing mind from memory.
2: Is he a realist about
0: universals, I guess, is the,
2: (laughs) the question. Yeah. I think it's pretty clear from this that he is. He's calling them things themselves.
0: Yeah. And if you are a realist about things themselves, then you think that not only when I think the term cow in general, am I thinking of a bunch of different cows, but there's something over and above that, the universal cow that I'm thinking of.
2: Yeah, so concept, you're right, is not – it's a modern-day way of referring to that, yes, as opposed to the idea, the platonic idea that has to be involved, that seems to be involved for Augustine.
0: Right. It would, of course, be helpful, and maybe he did that in that other work, the Christian doctrine that I referred to, to talk about, you know, is there a universal cow or something? But all we can do is kind of read into what he says here, which, you know, he seems to have a problem with the notion of forgetfulness. There should be a universal – That's a real thing, the thing itself that's referred to by forgetfulness. And that's the thing that would be a pure negative. Whereas for us, of course, forgetfulness is just a term we put together referring to all sorts of individual acts where we and people we knew forgot things. There's nothing problematic about it at
2: all. Yeah, I don't see the paradox even if we're Platonists, though.
1: Can someone explain that to me? Maybe we should read some more quotes. Well, this is just the beginning of 16, right? I can also name forgetfulness and know what I mean by the word, but how should I recognize the thing itself unless I remembered it? I'm not speaking of the sound of the word, but of the thing that the sound signifies. For if I had forgotten the thing, I should be unable to remember what the sound stood for. When I remember memory, my memory itself is present to itself by itself. But when I remember forgetfulness, then memory and forgetfulness are present together. Forgetfulness which I remember, memory by which I remember. But what is forgetfulness except for absence of memory? How then can that be present for me to remember, which when it is present means that I cannot remember? At this point, I'm sort of feeling the way Mark did, that it seems like he's being way too literal about what forgetfulness is.
2: Well, yeah, if we can remember sorrow while feeling joy, why can't we remember forgetfulness without being forgetful, right? Clearly, he's being very platonic here about it being a... Thing itself, and it sounds like, as well, if we just come into sort of intellectual contact with this thing, it's like it should sort of sap all the memories out of our mind because it's the ideal of forgetfulness or something. But
0: the footnote after the absence of memory forgetfulness falls into that shadowy category of reality whereby something has its existence or is known by virtue of what it is not. See also Augustine's breakthrough into understanding of evil, darkness, and silence. The recognition of such paradoxically unreal entities also opens the mind to even greater phenomena such as the mind's participation in the intelligibility of God. Well, we don't have to care about what that last part means, but that's why I thought this was so important and why this psychology is supposed to be connected to metaphysics here. It's not just that I'm remembering now, but I can remember times in the past when I've forgotten, but that we are encountering an entity. But it's an entity that somehow doesn't have reality, and there seem to be all sorts of entities that, you know, evil itself has to end up being something that can't have reality. If it had reality, then it would have been created by God. But God didn't make evil, so it must just be something in our minds. It's a privation. It's a lack of something that we expect to be there, or something. You know, it's it's just the absence of good.
1: So it's not a being, except insofar as it's the absence of something else from a
2: particular human perspective because the universe as a whole has has no such absence it's a perspectively based absence or i don't know is it something that's only in the human imagination like time
1: I i thought the point was that evil or forgetfulness or silence don't have their own existence in particular they don't have their own forms if i would speak platonically But we speak of them only insofar as something is absent. So, silence is the absence of sound, but there would be no form of silence. And the important one there is evil, which metaphysically, as Mark pointed out, becomes the avenue by which you are able to preserve the universal goodness of the world, but um, articulate what is meant by evil and have it, in some sense, be a real thing. So. On the one hand, evil, quote-unquote, doesn't exist. But on the other hand, evil is absolutely real in those terms, right? Maybe in Kantian
2: language, it's empirically real but transcendentally ideal. <laughs> that, oh. <laughs> but seriously, because it can't be real in the in the full sense for Augustine. It can't be
1: yes. yeah, yeah it's, it's, He
2: he would deny yeah. that. But I shouldn't have said absolutely real. That's why I was bringing in perspectival, the whole perspectival thing where yes, it's real,
1: someone who's having their leg sawed off, or whatever you think of as evil. But is it perspectival, though? Because I thought that for Augustine, it's not a question of perspectivalness. Well, this is the other part of his theory, that this absence, from a
2: bird's eye point of view, there is no such absence. God would never look at the universe and experience such absence. It's just because we are sort of parts of the whole that we can experience such terrible things. There's no denying the terrible suffering in life and all the horrible things that can happen, whatever your metaphysical theory about it being an absence, right? There's more to his theory than that. He needs more than just to say, well, the evil isn't a metaphysical entity, it's just an absence, because you still have to explain away the psychological part of this. And the way I think that's done is it's this idea of our limited perspectives of the universe, as opposed to God's bird's eye view and God has the truth of the capital T and we have something less unless we're totally into God and then everything's fine. No matter what happens to you. <laughs> anyway, this is sort of off. It's not in this particular reading. So, Well, it's one of the
0: leftover things from book three and book seven, where he's talking about what evil is and it's all very much connected with this idea of degrees of reality So I was trying to remember whether Augustine was before or after St. Anselm of Canterbury, who has the ontological argument that talks about degrees of reality. And that's actually way later. That's like 600 years later. But you can see the roots, and I'm sure that it goes back to Aristotle or Plato and other folks like that, this idea that only God is completely real. That has everything to do with the fact that God is eternal, that if something is temporary, then it doesn't have true reality. And so there has to be some connection between that, why we are not truly real, and going down the gradations. So the most real thing is the creator. And then the creatures, the created things, still have reality. In Insofar as they have reality, they are good. But below those, things that are not actually good have no reality. And so human beings, they have to have enough reality to be corruptible, but they can't have so much reality that they... Well, actually, the corruptibility is a good way of pointing at the middle point.
2: We're talking about being, nothingness, and becoming here. Yep. Um, and it gets tricky real quick.
0: And I think that's entirely relevant to this talking about the rest of memory for the rest of this chapter as well. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So let's right.
0: get into that. When the memory itself loses anything, as happens when we forget something and try to recall it, where are we to look for it save in the memory? And if the memory chances to offer us something else instead, we reject it, until we come upon the thing we were looking for. And when we come upon it, we say, this is it. But we could not say this unless we recognized it, and we could not recognize it unless we remembered it. Yet certainly we'd forgotten it. So this is one of those paradoxes.
2: Yeah, so this is Mino's paradox. He sets this up in actually section 18, as that's very obviously Mino's paradox. So he gives us a tentative solution here. So trying to remember the name of a man whose name we have forgotten, he sort of gives us like an associative theory. Some other name occurs to us, we do not accept it because it was not our habit to think of that name with that man. We go on rejecting until the name occurs, with which the mind is satisfied because it had been used to associating it with the man. So, but where does that name come back from except from memory? So we still have a problem. It has to be in there somewhere. This implies that there's at least, even when we've forgotten something, it's still within knowledge or that there's a possibility of partial knowledge. He says it's not
1: utterly forgotten. The way it's presented there with a man whose name we used to know, and now we've forgotten it. And it's a kind of weak form of Mino's paradox, where in that case, it's actually closer to the learning of something we don't even remember knowing. Yeah, The demonstration with the slave boy is showing him recollecting that the diagonal of a square is the square root of two. And Socrates tries to pawn that off as recollecting. And that's much stronger of a claim than what Augustine seems to be making here, even if it's similar.
2: So then he moves on to remembering happiness.
1: Well, at the beginning of 20, he makes a segue into happiness by reminding us that we're really looking for God. How then do I seek you, O Lord? For in seeking you, my God, it is happiness that I am seeking. I shall seek you that my soul may live. For my body lives by my soul, and my soul lives by you. What is the way to seek happiness then? Because I have no happiness till I can say and say rightly, enough, it is there. Right. So
2: it turns out that desiring happiness requires, we have to have some knowledge of happiness.
1: Yeah. That makes the link back to memory, right? Is how do I recognize happiness? If I don't remember what happiness was, how do I recognize it? How do I get to God? Because I seek God in order to be happy, but in order to find happiness, I need to recognize what it is. Right.
2: Somewhere or other they have come to know it, that is, they have some sort of knowledge of it. I strive to know whether or not this knowledge is in the memory, for if it is, then we have at some past time been happy. In section 21, it turns out happiness is, it's not in the memory in the way that other things are in the memory. It's not in the way that sense impressions are. It's not even in the way in the memory in the way numbers and a priori things are. Or eloquence, you know, skill-based sorts of procedural memories and then he gets into a section where he's going to talk about happiness is in the memory in the same way that joy is. So he ended up with talking about but where and when I had any experience of happiness, that I should remember it and love it and long for it, and that everyone else does as well. Basically, I just have to have experienced happiness in the past. This is the end of chapter 21 here. All
0: agree that they desire happiness, just as they would agree if they were asked that they desire joy. And indeed, they think joy and happiness are the same thing. One man may get it one way, another, another... Yet all are alike in striving to attain this one thing, namely that they may be joyful. It is something that no one can say that he has had no experience of, which is why he finds it in his memory and recognizes it when he hears the word happiness.
2: In section 22, he realizes that happiness is joy in God and not some people have joy in vices. So it turns out that not everyone really does desire happiness if we define happiness as joy in God. Then he goes on to say, well, if it's joy in God, it's also joy in the truth. And everyone desires joy in the truth, because in the sense that everyone desires not to be deceived. It's not entirely uncomplicated, because we might wish to deceive people, but at the very least, we wish not to be deceived. So he's taking the joy in truth as a universal thing. And then... So the question is why we fail in being happy if the joy and truth is what happiness is. And the answer is that people are distracted from the truth because they, he says, they remember truth so slightly. And the thing that interferes with our remembering of the truth is that we love other stuff. And this is where I started to think about Nietzsche and his stuff on truth. But when the truth conflicts with something else we love, something else we want, then we hate the truth. So even though the truth is, it should be the source of our happiness. The joy in truth, it's conflicts with other, you know, with our concupiscence, with our desires, because the truth would reveal us, it would show us to be sinful. We hate the truth. So there's this interesting paradox that even thus does the human mind, blind and inert, vile and ill behaved desire to keep itself concealed, yet desire that nothing should be concealed from itself. So this whole desire for truth becomes sort of asymmetrical. We want to uncover other things, but conceal our own wretchedness from ourselves and others so that we can keep pursuing our lusts.
0: They hate the truth for the sake of that other thing which they love because they take it for truth. Oh, well, that's a little bit different than what I said. But it's in the same section. They love the truth when it enlightens them. They hate truth when it accuses them.
2: My interpretation of that, so truth is loved in such a way that those who love some other thing want it to be the truth. So this other thing I took to be any other thing we desire, you know, we want it to be the truth in the sense that we want it to come to be. Or we want it to be the right thing. So even if it's gluttony or if it's lust, we'd rather ignore the truth of the wretchedness of that situation because our desire overwhelms us so much. And so we treat it almost as if it is the truth.
1: But what about the last two sentences? Even so, for all its worthlessness, the human mind would rather find its joy in truth and falsehood so that it shall be happy if with no other thing to distract it shall one day come to rejoice in that soul truth by which all things are true. So that even with that desire to ignore true things or deceive itself, ultimately the human mind still understands what the truth is and is sensitive to that and would rather have it than not, which seems to be just a straight-up claim that he's making, mainly because the truth comes through God.
0: Yeah. Right. So this seems to be just another restatement or a grappling with a platonic problem. Plato's saying that everybody tends toward what they take to be the good. Yeah. So we can get insight here into Ava's claim that Augustine was so different from Plato and Aristotle because those guys said, well, once you recognize something for the good, that's what you go toward. But of course, there's things in the Nicomachean Ethics about akrasia, about why do we uh, not pursue what we know to be good? Weakness of the will. As, yeah, like, incontinence. Nichristia. And so, how is this different?
1: Her claim is that Augustine presents us with the active willing of evil as opposed to mere incontinence. In fact, that the will is primarily distinguished by being against God's will. And therefore, the willing of evil is its distinguishing feature. That That's how we recognize that there is a will, is that we go against God.
0: Okay, well, so let's try to see how that thing that we learned from other parts of the Confessions and from Ava is reflected here, because it's not super obvious. It's interesting that we're in the middle of a book that's supposed to be about memory, about epistemology. But of course, for Plato, that's very closely related to ethics. And so that's what I'm trying to get at here is he's making a very platonic sounding claim that everybody wants happiness. And the difference is that different people take different things to be happiness initially, the thing that I had taken the note is that people reject the truth in favor of what they take to be truth. And that sounds like it's what they see to be truth, what they think that truth really is. It it sounds like they're making a mistake. And maybe that's true. But then when Wes read more, read the sentences just before that, this is a, a few sentences earlier, simply because truth is loved in such a way that those who love some other thing want it to be the truth.
2: And then thus they hate the truth for the sake of the other thing. Which they love because they take it for the truth. Which I think could just be a simple saying as being Thrasymachus, you know, or one of those other Platonic characters who says, of course, having power and money and pleasure is the good.
1: But this is different than what he talks about with what happens to him with the pears that he steals. But is it? I think because it's willful taking here. Well, he makes the distinction. He says that it's not that he thought that stealing the pears was good and that He wanted to do it because it was good and true. He wanted to do it because of the evilness of it. He wanted to do it because it was wrong. That's an added distinction from what he's talking about here. Here he's talking about being in love with something and saying that it's true because we love true things and so we take things to be good even though we're wrong about that. So you're right, Mark, that that is a kind of platonic understanding that if we take something That's actually bad for us to be the good because we're always inclined towards the good. We're just making a mistake about how we understand the good. But earlier he makes a different distinction about our kinds of activities that we can have in which we actually purposely do things that are evil for the sake of them being evil, which is different than what he's talking about here. Here you're doing something that's wrong, but for the sake of you believing or at least convincing yourself that it's good.
0: Right, the convincing itself. I think that Augustine is trying to say that we're responsible for our own mistakes, that sort of God gives us the light of reason and such, so that we always have the opportunity. We're never really honestly (laughs) self-deceived, right? We're always the ones doing the deceiving. sure, And being wrong about anything, since all general truths are a matter of consulting the inner Jesus— Whenever we hold any wrong doctrine about anything, it's because we are ignoring the inner Jesus and we are cleaving to something else. If he was thinking he was so long caught by the idea that God must be some kind of body, because he was clinging to the idea of body in general, he was just he
2: was a body kind of guy. He was an, a, a lascivious individual. In general, the thing we cling to is depending on ourselves instead of depending on God. Treating ourselves as omnipotent. That's his whole explanation of why it is that we would just do something evil for the sake of it being evil. Well, it's because the transgression part of it that makes us feel free and unbounded by God's laws and all of that stuff. We are our own lawgivers and we have that freedom and ultimately that sense of omnipotence. Here, I take his account to have something to do with falling into heteronomy, falling into lust and desire and rationalizing it with the idea that it's the good or the true But you know the other part of heteronomy also is that the whole problem with lust for Augustine is that it separates us from God. It makes us think that those corporeal, material things are enough. So we sort of, instead of depending on God, we think we can depend on them, even though they are becoming, they pass away, so on and so forth. So. I'm trying to get at the sense in which these explanations are related, but they're both a sense in which we turn away from having to depend on God to something which is freer, you know, whether it's pursuing your own lusts or doing something, the transgression, simply for the sake of proving that you're free. So I'm saying the akrasia explanation, I'm saying there's a sense in which they can be reconciled with the willful transgression explanation.
1: Yes. Yeah, but the Akaseya explanation, that kind of Aristotelian incontinence seems to me to be completely different. This seems to be much, much more platonic. Let me explain again what I mean. I thought I understood what you were saying. Okay. In that, in this section, he's pointing to the way in which we categorize something that is bad as good in order to justify our inclination towards it, and that we either make an honest mistake about it or we, you know, make a dishonest mistake about it.
2: What's the problem with lust? Why can't we just screw and eat and do whatever we want? Because it is too enticing. It pulls us too wholeheartedly and
0: away from God.
2: Because we can't depend on those things in the way we depend on God. They're fleeting, they're passing, Mm -hmm. they're not ontologically foundational enough for for our souls. Yeah, they're not true. Even though from a psychological perspective, it's not like I overeat and or I pursue my lusts because I want to transgress against God, but it has that same effect of separating me from God. When I'm doing the pear garden thing, it's for the feeling of omnipotence. It, it certainly is different than simply pursuing pleasure, but they're not unrelated things in the sense that the one is an attempt to free myself from the tyranny of God The other is primarily for the sake of pleasure, but does have that effect of separating me and freeing me from God. I'd be surprised if that weren't part of the psychological motivation. So this is what Lacan calls jouissance, right? Doing things for pleasure, especially if we're overeating and we're actually ultimately making ourselves sick and doing things like that, that's the jouissance part of it. There's that transgressive element, which is there as well, even in the akrasia explanation. So I I agree with the distinction. I'm just – I thought Mark was trying to get us to grapple with those two different strains in Augustine. I had actually been thinking quite a bit about this. I've previously been following Ava's lead and interpreting all these
0: mistakes as pernicious, as rebellious. But now I think that maybe Ava overstates the willfulness – what is implied by willfulness in the way that we discussed it on the episode with her is seeing an authority and saying, screw you authority. I'm doing the opposite of this. But even in the case with the pears, he was not thinking about, Oh, that God is a tyrant over me. I'm going to reject God and do this own thing. Like it was not spitting in the face of authority in the way that a two year old grabs her sandwich and is willful, and confronts the other, and says, screw you, to the other. That it's more like the platonic mistake, where you take something to be good. So in this case, in the, in the case of the pairs, I take this to be an assertion of my autonomy, and that feels good or something, and it's just that there's something mistaken about that. Instead of interpreting all this is as assholish and extra willful, I think we should interpret it more as mistaken.
1: No, I completely disagree with you, Mark. I think that both things are going on. This kind of mistakenness is going on in the section that we're focusing on right now, but I think that Augustine is utterly clear that the act with the pair is a willful act of loving the thing and the sin itself. It's not a misunderstanding of what is good is. The way Augustine understands it he doesn't think of it as, well, I just did, I thought that stealing the pears was good and it was fun, but I misunderstood that. Right, because he's giving a post hoc
0: analysis of his action. He's saying, after the fact, what I was really doing is rebelling against God. But the way
1: he describes it is he. No, he doesn't say rebelling against God. He's saying that he's in love with the sin. Now, you can go from there to say that that was an act of rebelling against God. But the important thing about that section is that he's saying that he's doing evil for evil's sake, which is very different than being incontinent with respect to the good, which is Aristotle, or misunderstanding what the good is, which is Plato. So in the section that we're reading right now, in section uh, book 10, there it's very platonic. I misunderstand what the good is, and I don't do it because I'm inclined to the good, because everything's inclined to the good, but I happen to misunderstand what the good is. Then you have something like Aristotle, which is, I know what the good is, but I can't get myself to do it. I'm incontinent with respect to it. I try to do it. I reach for it, but I fail. And then you have the section on the pair, whereas I purposefully do the evil thing, the thing that I know is wrong. I actually embrace it and do it for its own sake. And that's a third different thing. I think Mark knows that that's
2: Augustine's argument, right? Yeah. But he's saying he doesn't buy it. I'm saying that throughout
0: here, I think Augustine tries to equivocate those kind of things, that really, even if you think you are making a mistake, you are being willful. Even if you think you are having just a weakness of will, you want to do the good, but that it's really, it amounts to the same phenomena as being willful. And what I'm worried about is, how do we characterize that? You're saying, oh, no, those are very different things. There's the Augustinian pair example, and there's the Aristotle thing. I'm saying he really tries to mush them all together. So in my mind, I'm trying to figure out how to characterize this single mushed together thing. According to Augustine straight up, I think, you know, the way I've been saying it before is we are responsible for our intellectual mistakes. It is both willful and it is mistaken. Well, I don't think that's a tenable argument. So I think you could account for all the stuff that Augustine is trying to account for, including the pair example by really the way that West just characterized the pair example, pursuing what you think you're not thinking very much at all, but pursuing what you take at that moment to be the good.
1: But do you think that that's what Augustine is saying? Or do you think that that's a way to rationalize Augustine to make himself consistent or to make all of these things part of one thing? Because yes, maybe you can come up with another way of understanding all of these examples that comes under one version of it. What I want to distinguish
0: is between the post hoc analysis of it as being willful and how you actually feel about it at the time. And he doesn't really believe that because he thinks that if you make a mistake, you're really self-deceiving yourself. You really on some level know you're deceiving yourself. And so you're really being a willful bastard. That's
2: his analysis. So... Can't we admit that sometimes we do things for the sake of pleasure and sometimes it's will to power? The willfulness thing is a will to power. I'm doing things for the feeling of omnipotence.
1: I think you're softening the way Augustine is understanding.
2: Well, I'm I'm relying on his explanation where he essentially says you, you want to be omnipotent like God. Yeah, and I admit I may be stretching it when I associate it with will to power. So let's leave that. Part aside. No,
0: but I think you're, you're onto something just because it's a positive, that even if you say it's I'm pursuing power, that's a positive thing, which is different than I just do it because it's wicked, which sounds purely
2: negative. Right. And we talked about this in the first episode where he initially says, yes, I'm doing it because it's evil. But then he gives a very acute, interesting psychological explanation of this where he w- wants to explain it in terms of us going after this feeling of omnipotence and again, trying to be gods unto ourselves, which is one of his recurring themes. And even Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche makes fun of the English philosophers for trying to reduce all human motivation to pleasure when he sees this whole will to power thing as a much more fundamental force. But that doesn't mean that we don't sometimes do things simply for pleasure. Psychologically, the Perigarden situation is quite different from me simply being a glutton. Although, as I just said before, I think there's the jouissance will to power element even in that pure case of gluttony. And the other thing I just wanted to say is I also think there's a strong sense in which the platonic theory of no man knowingly does evil can be reconciled with the willfulness theory. And that's the sense in which the putting yourself in the omnipotent position actually is related. It is an attempt to regain the moral order for yourself or to sort of re-establish the moral order. I've mentioned this guy Jack Katz before in The Seductions of Crime, and there's actually another book out called... Virtuous violence. There's a lot of this sociology done on when people commit violence. I mean, and this is just really, I mean, I think the sociology has shown this very well. They usually are in a self righteous state of mind, even when they're doing things that don't obviously look like they're of moral import. Violence is hyper moral. So even if you think to yourself, oh, I'm doing this because I'm an evil bastard and I just like to fucking torture and murder people, there's actually a way to understand that as a sort of hyper moralism in which my evil is sanctified by the shitty treatment I received as a child because everyone else sucks and I should be able to do this to other people. So that kind of thinking. So I think there's an interesting way in which all these explanations, they're not as simply cut and dried and distinct as they seem to be at first blush.
1: I think part of it depends on, A, how seriously you take Augustine as speaking of doing evil for evil's sake, and B, whether you think that he's right about that or not. It may be that he's simply wrong. So, in your articulation of those interesting ways in which they're linked, Wes, one of the ways I would read that is that Augustine is simply wrong about the notion of doing evil for evil's sake. No, I, I don't think he is.
2: I think he's correct psychologically. Once you've explained evil for evil's sake, I think if you stop there, you leave it as sort of an opaque mystery of what that means. What does it mean to want to do evil for evil's sake? You have to get deeper into the psychology. And once you get to the point of trying to inhabit a position of omniscience or power, then you're, I mean, I think he's exactly right about that. And he explicitly says that. And then that links up with some of the other stuff. So
1: Yes, but when you gloss it as will to power or omnipotence, That's very transparently another version of we do things because they're good for us.
0: Because we take them to be good for us, yeah.
1: And that's not taking seriously the notion that we're doing things that are bad for bad's sake. And that's fine. To me, that just means that Augustine would be interpreted as being fundamentally wrong in this respect of understanding psychology of doing bad things or things that are bad for us or doing wrong things. That it could be more platonic, like we are just misunderstand it, or it could be a will to power, which is very close to that same kind of idea, it seems to me. Well, he's right to the extent
2: that someone might, psychologically he's right, someone might be telling themselves they're doing an evil thing because it's evil like a Graham Greene character whose Catholicism has ruined them and turned them into someone who's attracted to evil. But I, yeah, I think at, at a deeper level, I'm challenging the notion. And I think Augustine sows the seeds that undermine that explanation when he gets into that whole omnipotence and power stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe that's the case.
2: Well, and maybe it's the case that all these are on a
0: spectrum it's just that the way Ava was characterizing it, Augustine's legacy, according to her, is that the par example is the paradigm case of willing. So that really, whenever you make a mistake, it's, uh, you know, whenever you engage in a self-deception, whenever you cleave to something instead of God, that you're saying, fuck you, God. That's what's really going on. Whereas maybe Augustine's real picture is that in the extreme case, you're actually saying, Yes, I'm doing this for wickedness sake, but in the vast majority of cases, even though I still think it's wrong, even though it's against God, you do actually think you're doing the right thing. You're not trying to be willful against God. You don't even have God on your radar. You're just trying to pursue what you're trying to pursue, whether, and you can call it will to power or call it any number of other needs and desires, but you don't have as part of your fundamental psychological makeup, the idea that there's a giant I don't know. Now I'm convincing myself the other way that he has the Kierkegaard picture of as soon as you let yourself glance a little bit, you see that there's a giant God looming there. And so anything you do is going to be colored either paying attention to that or willfully turning away from that. that that's just Augustine's picture.
2: And I think the God thing is actually fundamental because look at what happens to schizophrenics. The omnipotence thing often has a manifestation of them having delusions that they are God or Jesus or something like that. Even if you're not religious, it's a psychological schema of some sort, I think. The omnipotent being that I potentially might be, the one who depends on no one, who can meet all his own needs, who will never lose anything, that's the psychological schema at work. But is this relevant to
0: (laughs) how he's talking a little later about, despite all my enlightenment, I still, when I come upon a spider in a web eating a fly, I'm absorbed by that. And- can we really characterize that? Or do we want to characterize that as, well, that's just a mild version of the same thing that was going on with the pairs. There has to be something that's
1: simply ignoring God and not saying, screw you, God. Again, Mark, I think that there is that ignoring God part going on. I don't think that means that saying, screw you, God, is just another degree of ignoring God. I at least see both of those things going on.
2: Yeah, I think we would say at least, yes, we do things for pleasure. Without being willful, that's the point. Without being willful, but although later on Augustine frets about the perils of pleasure, because like I said, even if it's not willful in its intent, it still has that effect of separating us from God, according to Augustine. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And I think implied in there is that it's easy to slide from the pleasure mode to something that goes into jouissance mode, where we actively are trying to separate ourselves from God. Those two things are never so easily distinct. And that's what Augustine worries about in the later books. So it's the idea that, for instance, I might be eating the soup one minute for the basic pleasure provides, but then I might get sucked into a fantasy of nothing else in the world matters, and this is all I need. that something that feeds my little omnipotent fantasy. I think that's the sinful danger of any basic pleasure, which is why Augustine is so worried about even hearing music, like any pleasure he's worried about.
1: Yeah, and and this is where he sort of goes off the rails. (laughs) I mean, at least to me he does. That the body becomes a deep problem. That any kind of experience of pleasure becomes a fast train to hell away from God. And he's wringing his hands in those sections about how he needs to it's not even discipline himself. He needs to deprive himself in order to constantly keep himself close to God for fear of falling away from God. And what I find disturbing and confusing about those sections is the relying on God part is utterly vacuous of cause or motion or way in which it's going to work. It's that I'm going to deprive myself because if I don't do so, I find myself falling away from God. It involves so little activity to rightly orient yourself in any kind of positive way that everything you're doing is negative at that point. It's very, very far away from some kind of virtue ethics or idea of understanding a balanced soul. It's literally understanding... You as being kind of depriving your soul in order to maintain a closeness with God. It's like gripping a hold of the side of a mountain where you imagine you're always on a tiny, tiny ledge. So I'm glad you brought this back to teleology. <laughs> where in that was
0: teleology? <sighs> if you focus on the willfulness, then you're focusing on our sinful nature. And you're saying our teleology is to fall away from God, is to get sucked into anything that comes along and that's really what willfulness is all about, is by asserting me and my particular connection to these created things and these other temporary things, asserting my own temporariness and asserting that it is, in fact, eternal, that I am God, all this stuff, that
1: that's what human nature is. I'm not sure that I agree that he completely understands the falling away from God as being completely willful.
2: We're talking about these final sections in Book 10, right, where he's worried about food and all the other Pleasure, yeah. Yes, but then
0: I forget exactly where this is. Maybe this is getting into even Book 13 stuff that we're not going to explicitly talk about. But he seems to think once we're away from those distractions, once we can neutralize, then we are at peace in God. And this is why I was trying to hook it up to Plato. Everybody tries to do what they think to be good. Everybody is attracted toward the good. Is I think that Augustine's picture is twofold, that half of it is – that original sin thing. But then the other part is that we are not in the absence of sin, like we're just hanging onto a mountain and any sin can come along and pull us down. It is true that as a matter of day-to-day living, even if he talks about even, you know, he's calmed him his lusts, but he still, when he is asleep, will have lustful dreams. Like they're just always freaking something. And it's only in death when I will... Be at one with God and be truly at rest. But still, we have deep within our memory, beyond the parts that anything through the senses could ever reach, in the part that becomes equivalent with remembering the truth that is God, is our true center, is our true still point. And this reminded me of Spinoza's take on immortality, that he says, so far as we are reasonable beings, then we are in essence, one with the absolute, with the whole. So, like, basically we are God. So, if you were very reasonable throughout your life and avoided the things of the flesh and just really getting all worked up over stuff, if we were creatures of stillness, then even though our individual body dies, it's like we are still living on because we live on in the universal (laughs) that persists. And you can kind of see where Augustine where we get a lot of that, that we have a God nature, I don't want to say in us, but the root to it is through our inside, as we reach into the storehouse of memory. And well, certainly God couldn't fit in the storehouse of memory. My own mind can't even fit in my own mind. So it must be a root to some metaphysically larger thing to God itself. And that is ultimately where our teleology wants to
2: pull it. If only we can shake free of sin— so he explains why we need continents. This is in chapter 29 of book 10. Because I just want to say this for people who think that it's sort of some sort of arbitrary prudishness. I don't think it is, even though it's insufferable to sit through these chapters of him worrying about all this stuff. So he says near the beginning of chapter 29, for by continents, we are collected and bound up into a unity within ourself, whereas we had been scattered abroad in a multiplicity. So this is getting back to mm-hmm. when I asked the question about, well, what's wrong with just giving into all our lusts? And I talked about the lack of their dependability, and that has implications for the unity of ourselves. So there's an explanation here. In other words, our integrity depends upon our continents, and our integrity is related to this relationship to God. So our relationship to God is the way we stay whole and actualized and all those other good things you might see in Aristotelian virtue ethics. It's not like the basic explanation is, well, I must have God and the pleasures separate me from God. There's a deeper explanation here where of why God is good for us and continence is good for us.
0: Yeah. And I think this relates to the thing about temporality in that insofar as we are creatures that exist over time, we are are composed of separate moments. We're divided amongst ourselves. And if we are incontinent, that means we are now getting swept up by one momentary pleasure and now another momentary pleasure and now we're swept up by the fights and (laughs) whatever the thing is. Whereas if we achieve a point of stillness where we are just oriented toward God and soaking everything up from God, then, well, God's voice ultimately speaks to us from beyond time. We become more like atemporal creatures. Again, we can't actually take the step until we die and enter that atemporal realm. And he actually has quite a bit in book 12 or 13 about the difference between the created heaven, which is atemporal, but still it's a created thing. It's not co-eternal with God and God himself. So there's room in the cosmology for us to be in touch with the atemporal realm without necessarily becoming God. It's not like Spinoza where see the God in yourself or any kind of Eastern mysticism where that's the ultimate point. Augustine's not going to be down with anything where God is deep with inside you in a literal way. It's that if you go deep enough inside you, you are just encounter a realm that is completely not you because it's not finite the way you are. It sounds like a matter of semantics, and that's something that I wrote about a a long time ago in undergrad about mysticism, about the different kinds of mysticism. Like, you could have a kind of mysticism where the point is to grow yourself, like the, you are God, I'm God, we're all God, we're all one. And so that the idea is to then identify yourself with the whole by sort of growing your ego such that it fills the whole thing, even though it becomes not a personal ego anymore, obviously. And then what happens if you instead, as Augustine is recommending, basically shrink everything about you that's individual so that you just are then all the things from day to day that are my concerns, just let them drop away. Those are not important. Basically snuff yourself out as an individual. <laughs> and then that's the backdoor entrance to the eternal, the one, your oneness. So the end result is actually the very same freaking thing, but it's, it's a completely opposite attitude towards... The self. Are you trying to grow it or are you trying to shrink it? And Christians are in the, the shrink camp. Right. Can we talk about time yet? Can we be done with book 10? We got to talk a little bit about Well, yeah.
2: We'd, I or thought we'd there... already talked about time.
1: <laughs> yeah, so did I. I thought we were done.
2: <laughs> All right. What else do you have to say?
1: It's the end of time.
2: It's the end of our time. <laughs> I thought I remembered... The section on memory led directly
0: into the section on time, but instead it leads into the second half of book 10 that we've been talking about, which is all this fretting about, I'm pretty good, but I still have a lot of sins
1: left. Yeah. I still have nocturnal emissions or whatever he's worried about. Love Uh, of praise. He he does like to be praised. (laughs) He's tempted by flattery. Food, music, art, anything beautiful, you
2: know, gossip, curiosity, all of those things. Freak shows. Side boob. <laughs> side boob. It would be better for my own good if I could just do good things
0: and not get praised for it. Because when I get praised for it, I start caring more about the praise than actually doing the good yeah. thing. But on the other side, the command of justice is that you praise people for doing good things and you condemn them for doing bad things. So I can't tell my fellows, please don't praise me anymore for my good things. Because like, that would be telling them to do the wrong thing. So there's these sort of practical contradictions in trying to be as perfect as perfect can be. Which I think it's easy to dismiss Augustine as naive on this or that. Like he just, oh, he's completely one-dimensional about sexuality or whatever. But when you look at how much he agonizes over these things, the agonizing is also a matter of intellectual agonizing. So he really is not capable of being naive about anything. Mm that he considers these practical contradictions of like being a saint. And though we might say, well, if wanting praise is a bad thing, but yet justice commands that people actually continue to praise you. So that's always going to be there. Then maybe there's something wrong with your aversion to praise in the first place. That might be the way we would react to that. But just like all these things, you know, he raises these apparent contradictions in the concept of creation or God himself Like It's not on the table to throw out the divine commandment. Like The hermeneutic task here is to see how these apparently contradictory things are, in fact, harmonious. Even if that means saying, well, we just can't fully understand how they're harmonious. We can't fully understand the Trinity. We can't fully understand how there could be no time before time or these many other things like this. But he never says, as people do now, but you just have to take it on faith. You just have to go with it. He never actually is at the point of saying you have to intellectually cop out. I'm ever grasping to get more of an intellectual handle on this because God gave me my reason to do so.
1: Yeah, but to go back to sort of question Mark you raised at the beginning, Mark, about it being often doctrinaire, is while he's trying to sort through some things, it's always seemingly in terms of I don't know if it was doctrinaire at the time or not, or if it just feels doctrinaire now, looking back on Augustine, right? But the characteristics of God and the questions that he's answering seem to always come down to what feel like doctrinaire answers. And that might be fine. As you point out, it's a hermeneutical task.
0: Right. The thing that I'm trying to grasp with here in dealing with Augustine is that the usual way that I, as a non-religious person, person think of religious people, (laughs) while I was an undergrad taking classes, and I would run in occasionally to somebody who was also a philosophy major, but who was super religious. And this was always very puzzling to me. And the way that I interpreted it is, well, there's a point in which they stop thinking. And I think Augustine is a good argument against that interpretation of a thoughtful religious person. There is not a point in which they stop thinking. It's just that, well, what is the alternative? that there's a framework in which they have to think, <laughs> that's kind of the way we're set. Well, you know, we're taking the Bible as given and I can think all I want so long as I don't go beyond that those bounds. I mean, that still sounds like there's bounds beyond which they stop thinking, <laughs>
2: but that's not how it feels when you read Augustine. I mean, if you're treating the Bible as something to be interpreted non-literally, let's say, then yeah, then it's not as much of a then it really isn't a boundary on thinking. Yeah. It's a, and it becomes more of a springboard for thinking.
1: Right. But you still have the logical demands of consistency and stuff. And that's where to me, it feels like the rationality of Augustine sort of rings through in that as he articulates with his problems with the Manichaeans and why he ultimately falls away from them, there's a lack of intellectual integrity regarding the way in which they think about the world that he finds a higher level of intellectual integrity in the Catholic way at his time about reconciling how you understand God and, and how you answer these paradoxes, these seeming paradoxes that are resolved in a satisfactory way.
0: All right, so let's talk about time in terms of that. And this is not the way he puts it, but you could sort of think of it in terms of Kant's antinomies that does time have a beginning or not, that it seems that if it just went on forever, there's just something that boggles our mind about that. We can't make sense of that. So it must have had a beginning, but then it can't, according to the Kantian argument, it can neither go on infinitely, nor can it have a beginning. Neither of those sort of make sense to us. And so Augustine's, you know, the theological way around that is to, as we were saying before, to say, God created time, and what creation mean, and then and then go on to figure out what creation means, because it can't be, and this is, came up in Dawkins or something, that like, well, to create anything, if I create a watch, well, it's, I have hands, I have tools, there are parts of me that address parts of the watch, and we put them together. Well, that can't oh be the way God, creation yeah. happens. It has to happen all at once. The Word of God is what creates it. Well, then, and it doesn't even make sense to ask what happened before the Word, because the word is the creation, and yet you can still talk about logical priorities. You can say that God created forms out of formless matter, even though the formless matter did not exist prior to it getting a form. <laughs> the formed matter is sort of logically subsequent to the formless matter, but chronologically, they both happened at the same time. So it could be that these are just ways of putting together words that make the the puzzles supposedly less glaring. They, they let your mind rest at ease by just bamboozling you with a bunch of words like eternity and co-eternal the, – the, the thing that I just said about formless matter. But at least it sounds impressive enough that it doesn't feel like – I could see Augustine's point of view that he doesn't think he's stopped thinking.
1: I mean, the time stuff is – part of his hermeneutical exercise about understanding what God is. And the whole end of the book for several chapters is him going through that exercise, the beginning of which in 11 is why is he writing? He's meditating on God's law. And then he gets to this point where you said about God speaking his word, which takes you immediately to what happened in the beginning. And so that directly leads to the discussion of time and so it's part of the hermeneutical exercise of understanding what god is speaking to us after having understood how another connection we have to god which is via our memory and our minds
0: so we have to read some of these quotes about time because we've built it up too much (laughs) is this i think i think it's by the chapter 11
2: maybe Book eleven, chapter fifteen.
0: Or? I I've I've got some stuff before that in chapter eleven at at least. But I'm not sure exactly which which of the, the best quote. Well, book eleven that. is
2: about God's eight temporality in his creating of time. I mean chapter eleven of Book Eleven.
0: Right, so book twelve, what I come now to answer the man who says, What was God doing before he made heaven and earth? I do not give the jesting answer, said to have been given by one who sought to evade the force of the question. He was getting hell ready for people who pry too deep. <laughs> To poke fun at a questioner is not to see the answer. My reply will be different. I would rather say that I don't know when I don't than hold up one to ridicule who has a profound question and win applause for a worthless answer. That was all a digression, but it was a fun enough one that it's worth reading. But, oh my God, I say that you are the creator of all creation, and if by the phrase, heaven and earth, we mean all creation, then I make bold to reply, before God made heaven and earth, he did not make anything. For if he had made something, what would it have been but a creature? And I wish I knew all that it would have been profitable for me to know, as well as I know that no creature was made before any creature was made. Well, that's not talking about the phenomenology of time yet. When do we actually get to that? That's on chapter 15?
2: Yeah. He's really talking about God is not, he wasn't doing anything before time because there is no before time for God. There's no, in his atemporal world, there's no before and after. So then chapter 14, he asks the question of what is time then? And then we get into the... Well, it's really chapter towards the end of chapter 14 where he gets into the phenomenology. But the two times, past and future, how can they be, since the past is no more and the future is not yet? On the other hand, if the present were always present and never flowed away into the past, it would not be time at all, but eternity. Even the present, the, the
0: next sentence, but if the present is only time because it flows away from the past, how can we say that it is?
2: For it is only because it will cease to be. Right. And then he gets us to say what the present is, which it turns out to be an indivisible moment with no duration. So near the end, if we conceive of some point of time, which cannot be divided to even the minutest parts of moments, that is the only point that we can call the present. If there's anything longer than something with no part, then you can divide it up into past, present, and the future, right? So the, the present is now. Right. But it's of no duration. And so that point flees at such lightning speed from being future to being past, that it has no extent of duration at all. For if it were so extended, it would be divisible, blah, blah, blah. I found that very fascinating. So it seems like he doesn't give
0: an argument there for the past not existing and the future not existing.
2: I'm I'm willing to grant that the past doesn't currently exist.
1: Well, the past and future don't exist in the sense that they're not now.
2: Yeah. Napoleon does not exist. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't – is there an argument needed for that?
0: Okay, well, so you agree with him flushing by it. My great-grandchild doesn't exist. I've read too many books and see too many movies about time (laughs) travel. (laughs) That it's easy for me to picture time as being like a timeline that is written on a piece of paper and that all the past and present actually do exist in a sense right now, though not in a temporal sense, (laughs) but they coexist as if time was a
2: dimension that one could pass back and forth
0: as one goes left and right.
2: I think Augustine agrees from the God's eye view, right? That's the way it looks. There is no time for God. And that metaphor works. It's all just, you know, you could think of time as almost spatial in that sense, which is the way they often try and represent those. But it wouldn't even be spatial because God
0: is everywhere at once. So... It's more the sense of all at once than
2: time is frozen. Just trying to get the metaphor of how it would seem to God. All presents exist at once for God. But for us, that's not the case. For God, there isn't even a present because he's outside of it. You'd have to use a different word. If you want to be strict about what we mean by the word present, present is used metaphorically in those other cases. Well, what about the word
0: is? I guess that's the question. Because we think, as you guys so readily admit, that the past and future don't really exist, that they don't is, they they are not, to be grammatically correct, then uh, he wants to say that they lack being in a metaphysical sense. Yeah. And, and that completely goes together with all we've been saying all along, that everything that's not God is because it's finite, lacks being in some way. But you could say a finite thing at the point that it existed— had being right then. But that's not supposedly how being works. Being has to be something that is persistent. Is there an argument for that? Or how does that relate to this point here?
2: I don't know what you're asking.
1: He's asking, doesn't Augustine mean that things don't really have being unless they're eternal? And therefore, God is the only thing that really has being. And all things that are generated, live, and cease to be don't really have being because they aren't eternal. And isn't that what Augustine is saying?
0: So I know Augustine believes that. He makes it very clear. But is he in this section where he's talking about the past doesn't exist, the future doesn't exist, the present only exists insofar as it fading into the past, as far as it is becoming non-being? Is he trying to argue for that picture that God is infinite and everything else is not? Or is it underlying the phenomenology here? Is he already come to that conclusion and that's just determining his choice of words here, which is the the chain of justification.
1: I I just thought he was trying to understand time, and that to the extent that it brought along with it, understanding being is the only place where you had being or existence was in the present. As was pointed out, that manifestly, the past and the future don't have existence. That is, they don't have being at all. But I guess since the present
0: is so short, you don't even really have being in the present. There is no being as far as finite humans are concerned. I think that is what the ultimate conclusion of this. I'm just trying to determine, is that actually a good argument? Or did you not see that as as what he was arguing for, ultimately?
2: Well, I don't know about the status of being, honestly. He doesn't talk about that here. I guess you're just too finite,
0: Wes.
1: I think he may be talking about it implicitly in the sense of speaking of the past and the future not existing. So, therefore, they don't have being.
2: Well, that part, yes, mm-hmm. but the present is confusing because it has no duration. So does it have being? You know, it's the point which has no part problem, and I wouldn't know what to do with it. Well, does he know what to do with it? What is his solution?
0: I didn't see him talk about that, did he? Does he come up with a conclusion? One of the conclusions I have from chapter 12 is eternity can't be a time period at all. That you think about eternity as just like the longest time period. Right, it's not.
1: Eternity won't be a time period, right? Eternity is the
2: atemporal... Position.
0: Yes. Yeah. Exactly.
1: It has and no so, part. Eternity is the point.
0: And a corollary of that is no time is co eternal with God. Right. Maybe this is just, this is all just a roundabout way of remember, I introduced the time section by, oh, the Manichaean asked me, well, what did God do before he created stuff? He, so he's just explaining why that is all misconceived, even though he probably didn't need a 30 page digression to show that.
1: It's consistent with other things he's done and that he takes a question that seems to be a paradox and shows how, in thinking it through, he can make it understandable. Earlier on, in the first sections we read, he points to his understanding of what evil really is, as being a watershed moment for him intellectually, because he was able to resolve the conflict that there was God, the one purely good entity in the universe, actually created evil. And the Manichean position was that both things were in the world and that God was good, but there was also evil in the world that was against God and not created by God. And he found that utterly inconsistent and figured his way out of it by coming up with a different understanding of what evil was. And I think the same kind of thinking is going on here with time, going through the hermeneutic of what time is, to overthrow what appears to be a paradox and show that it's not really a paradox, but along the way inventing a notion of how to understand time. Sounds good. Really, we've
0: looped back to where we started the conversation in terms of Is time the motion of bodies? No. Yeah, we don't Uh, need to go over that again. Any final point or two from the text from near the end of this? or uh,
1: There are no more points. (laughs) (laughs) It's pointless.
0: Measured time does not exist objectively. The past devours the future.
2: In the end, it just looks like time is, as you pointed out, Mark, before, part of the imagination. It looks very Kantian, even though there's this talk of the present existing. Because he goes on to talk about the... Past and the future sort of looks like they exist only in the mind, and the present is a fleeting moment. And a moment isn't something that we experience, right? Even the smallest amount of experience for us has a duration that could be divided.
1: Well, it's always a motion, right? We never experience a moment because we always experience it in terms of motion. We can't experience time as a moment without experiencing the ends of it, and therefore we interpolate the moment by understanding the motions that bound it.
2: Also, a moment just, it doesn't contain enough data for experience.
1: We experience things in terms of differences. We never experience them in themselves. To the extent that we experience them in terms of differences, we have to have at least two of them in order to be able to have a difference and therefore have duration. And we will not have a point out of that. We will not have a moment out of that. It will always be a duration.
2: Yeah. So experience requires objects and objects require a sequence of perspectival snapshots that are held together within the mind. And so this fleeting, partless present isn't even something that we can experience. It's a hypothetical. What we think of as the briefest moment is actually quite extended in duration.
0: Well, what you and I have had together, my friends, we will always have this duration. (laughs) (laughs) But next time, in the next duration... We will read F.A. Hayek's The Use of Knowledge in Society, an article from 1945, and part one of Amartya Sen's On Ethics and Economics from 1987. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? This is what uh, our guest, who uh, uh, Seth solicited. So difficult to read. That's what's happening. Just to make us feel like Augustine was a more pleasurable experience.
1: (laughs) Are we going to grind some glass into our eyeballs and squirt lemon juice into it, too? Actually, Augustine wasn't that bad. Yes, let us,
0: uh, in the, what little energy we have left of this evening, give some final reflections on our experience with this continued duration with our friend
1: St. Augustine of Hippo. I say read Augustine, but feel free to fast forward through certain sections. Yeah. Certain parts of it are very interesting and he's not a bad writer, but some of the confessional aspect of it gets for me insufferable. Yeah. I have to just fast forward. Yep. Agreed.
0: By the end of this, on my second listen through, and again, there are parts of this reading that I actually read in the book, but still the majority of it I listened to again on LibriVox, and it's just that I would stop a lot and dictate a note into an email for myself. So I'm walking around listening at double speed to somebody reading Augustine and then stopping it and then reading a sentence like, he that speaks a lie speaks out of himself. Gift is what is perceived. The fruit is the goodwill of the giver. And... And then proceeding on my way, looking like an idiot as I'm walking the dog. So doing that for the second time, even with book 13 that I thought was just completely lacking in any content the first time I listened to it. And it has 38 chapters, so it's like not an insignificant piece of nothing. Even that I felt was a little satisfying on the second listen through that I was getting that old time philosophers like, he's got a well-polished system here. It may have... Things that are ultimately unsupported, but at least it's really goddamn consistent and rich and a smart person could think this, even though it should all be consigned to the flames because it's not about the things of the senses or mathematics, as Hume would say. So let's erase this episode. Consign it to the flames. (laughs) Hey, everybody, remember the after show. This is going to cover both of the Augustine episodes. It's going to be on Sunday, September 6th. Everybody should watch it on YouTube Thanks to all the people that have given us money because they want us, us to do more Augustine. So let's just do uh, The City of God. Let's do this five-volume.
1: I saw that on the bookshelf at the <laughs> bookstore, and I I like, re- went running away. <laughs> <Yeah. There's,
2: laughs> I won't be uh, partaking of any more of this. Uh,
0: <laughs> it's not even five volumes. I was just imagining five Spiritual volumes. Spiritual bounty. It,
1: it was in like a penguin paperback. It was a good three and a half inches thick.
0: Well, maybe somebody can start a not school group on that. They should do that. They should
2: publish Uh, editions in which the flowery bullshit is in like red ink, and (laughs) the rest of it's in black ink.
1: Some authors need to have had editors. Yes,
2: and uh, it sounds sacrilegious and uncharitable, but unless you're religious, I mean, you know, it's true. Unless you're a religious person. Or a religious person of that time or of a different century. It's not just the amount of delay and padding with the "Oh God and all that. It's the sort of hysterical, abject, masochistic nature of it that makes me feel violent <laughs> <laughs> towards Augustine. Like This makes me hate him. And, uh, but the parts where he's saying things are fantastic.
0: I just got around earlier today to doing a search among podcasts for things on the confessions, and I don't know what it was offhand, but there is some kind of theological seminary that has a lecture, like a good 45-minute lecture on each book up through book nine. And so I listened to a couple of them, and they're basically sermons. So I think this is great fodder for religious folks for including the latter books for just the purpose it was intended for, of contemplating the glory of God and how you too can resist temptation and be one with God. And it's just if that's not – if you want to actually do philosophy, then maybe that's not so useful. Yeah. Thanks, guys, for sticking it out. No thanks for Seth. (laughs) Seriously. I think he's – Probably one with God at this point. <laughs> Alright, fellas. Good night. Good night.
1: Good night. The past
3: is not the past is not the past is not real. The past is not the past is not the past is not real. I don't remember, I wasn't there It was nothing, I couldn't care The past is not the past is, the past is, oh God Just keep telling yourself The past is not the past is, not the past is, not real The past is not the past is, not the past is, not the Way it makes you feel we're all here now, just in the present. Except, oh God, what the hell happened? Except these things, these facts, take them and given as persistent, done but here with interest to someone who once thought of you as. the past is not the past is not the past is not the real The past is not the past is not the past is not the the past real is not the past is really really not real. I don't remember, I've no idea You cannot hate me, I want to fear In a long, cold chapter of a fictional drawing of a year-long Building all the left The best is not The best is not The best is not It's not real The best is not The best is not The best is not It's not really something To hold you It's not really something